You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to the Projection Booth. This is a special bonus for the episode Sugar Hill. As part of that episode, I spoke to director Paul Maslansky. Sugar Hill was actually his sole effort directing. For the most part, he was a producer, and I spoke to him about his job producing, how he got into the field, and some of the highlights such as, well, I didn't talk to him about Cop and a Half, unfortunately, or Scavenger Hunt, but I did talk to him about... Damnation Alley, and Race with the Devil, as well as a few other titles. You might know him best for the work that he's done on the Police Academy films, which we will hopefully have another Police Academy coming out here very soon. You can hear a little bit more about that in this bonus interview with Paul Meslansky. Keep on trucking. My biography is an easy one. Born in New York educated uh, public schools in New York, American public schools, not like English public schools. Uh, Then went to Washington Lee University in Virginia, where I spent four wonderful years. And then from there, went in the Army for a couple of years, wound up a tank driver at Fort Knox and Fort Benning, and then wound up actually after two years uh, running the drum, Drum and Bugle Corps at Fort Benning Infantry Center because I was a trumpet player and played jazz and still do to this day. After the service, I didn't know what the hell to do. I uh, had the GI Bill, so I went to Kansas City, Missouri, where my folks had moved, and I uh, had a day job as a cab driver, and at night I went to Kansas City University to take a uh, master's in history because I wanted to get into a, a good law school. And uh, my grades in college, I was a C student and just barely graduated, but I had a wonderful four years and learned quite a bit, learned to read more than anything else. I took this uh, degree in in, uh, Kansas City and got into NYU Law School, where I spent a year going to law school and playing music in New York and working odd jobs and having the GI Bill, which was wonderful. Didn't like it, went back to Kansas City, Uh, didn't do well in law school, I didn't study, I didn't like it. Met some good people who are still my friends after 40, 50 years, 60 years now almost. Yeah, 60 years, some of the law school people, and they're still my dear friends. From uh, Kansas City, spent a year there, sold time for a radio station, played a lot of music in society band, Tony DePardo society band. Just generally felt I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And I was 25 and I decided I have to see the world. When I was in the service, I only saw Kentucky and New Jersey and Louisiana and Georgia. But I 
had friends that were serving in Japan and they were serving in Taiwan and they were serving in Germany and wonderful places and writing stories. But, you know, this is, we're talking about the late fifties. It was a different kind of morality in America and things were beginning to happen overseas, uh, especially in Denmark. Uh, the films, the first sort of quasi pornographic films were being shown commercially now in America. But the sexual revolution hadn't hit America yet, really. And what was going on in Europe? And you heard tales and, you know, and I'm still unmarried and I didn't know what the hell to do. But I took my horn and I had uh, with a bunch of met a bunch of journalists when I was in Kansas City. They were all uh, friends of my my girlfriend's brother, who was an, a, a Kansas City star, highly placed reporter. And one weekend over at Lake Latawana, not too far from Harrius Truman's home in Independence, Missouri, we decided that we'd go to Europe in November. None of us had been to Europe. These were reporters and really about my age, some a bit older. I got a round-trip ticket on the Holland American Lines, New Amsterdam. The guys bailed out. They didn't make it. I did. I left for Paris with my horn and $500, knowing that, you know, I could find a band to play with perhaps in Paris. And uh, But in the meantime, I had when I was in the Army, when I was in the Army, very interesting, I, I served at Fort Slocum for eight weeks, taking a special course in propaganda. And it's called Troop Information and Education. And there I met the brother-in-law, of the pianist that was in my band in college. His name was David Picker, and he was vice president of United Artists. But he was in the army now. And I told him, you know, I don't know what the hell to do after the service. And he says, maybe you go into the movie business. And that's the first time and I ever really thought of it. Never, you know, never really thought of going into the business. Anyway, I'm in Paris. I get a job very quickly playing in a band. And uh, I wound up, in Paris for almost uh, almost two, a year and a half it was, and uh, while I was there, playing music and teaching English at Berlitz and just surviving and having a, a Wunderjahr, you know that's what the on the continent they call it a Wunderjahr, a year that you just kind of find yourself. My next door neighbor was uh, a young Danish film school student. His name is Benny Corzen. You should look him up. K-O-R-Z-E-N. First name Benny. B-E-N-N-I. Benny Corzen later produced Babette's Feast, amongst other things. A wonderful man. In any event, he was a student. and he, A lot of my friends were Fulbright scholars in Paris. Americans that were studying at the Sorbonne or the Col de Beaux-Arts or uh, one was a dancer, one was a clarinetist, one was an architect, and we were an eclectic group of wonderful Americans studying in Paris, and we all belonged to what was called the American Students and Artists Club, which was on Boulevard Raspail. It still exists there today. It was a meeting place for not only Americans, but all expats or students from other countries that were of a like. And they were students. They were people that were looking for their future. They were all people from 1918 to, to 28, 29. They were 
actors and 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 musicians and it was an extraordinary group of people at the american students and artists club and some very fine artists anyway then he said why not i'd like to make as my thesis for his film school he'd like to make a documentary about the fulbright scholars that i knew they were very interesting guys and, and women i said what do you want me to do about it benny and he said look i want you to produce it you put it together these are your friends I said, what, like, what does a producer do? You, you know, I, I don't have any money. I can't put it in. He said, well, let's go visit the Fulbright office here in Paris. And uh, let's talk about what, what I'd like to do as a director. And uh, you find out what a producer does, you know, by doing it. So we did that and went to the Fulbright office in Paris. And the man said, look, it sounds like a great idea, but I can't advance any sums to you. But if we like a black and white 16 millimeter 30 minute short film about the Fulbright program in France, we'll pay you $1,500 for your efforts. And so that was my first budget. And so now I have to decide we have to get words. We have to get a script. We have to get a scenario, something. James Baldwin, the great American writer, African-American writer, used to hold court and always be found at uh, a place called a coupole. No, it was the select. Every night he could be found there and, and people would gather around him because he was a brilliant man and he was also well published by this time. He was an expat American. I didn't know the man. I didn't know James Bowen, but I knew he hung out there and that's where we hung out. Most of our crowd did. So I go up to him and I said, Mr. Baldwin, and I explain what a the idea of this 30-minute documentary. He said, I've got just the writer for you. His name is Melvin Van Peoples. I said, Mel, I don't know who that is. He says, here, here's his phone number. Give him a call. Say I, I, I mentioned that he might be interested in this. So I pick up the phone, because in those days, no cell phones, man. You've got to get a jeton, and you got to go. You know, I didn't have a phone. And I'm living in a place that's three bucks. It's two dollars a night, and I, actually it's four. But I had a roommate who paid the other two, and he was he would sleep at his girlfriend's house half the week, and I'd sleep at mine. So we always had a single room. Anyway, that's another story. And we always had a rock with a note on it that said "secure," which meant help <laughs> in case we were starving. We throw it through the fucking window. But that's another story. Any event, I have my budget now. Uh, it's $1,500, and now I know I have to go. Uh, so I call Melvin Van Peoples. He said, yeah, come on over, and he gives me his address, Avenue Vagram, which is right near Etoile, which is the center of Paris, which is a very expensive neighborhood. And he gives me the address, and I look at the address, and I said, my God, this, this building is a palatial. It was like eight stories, but his address was the weekend etage, the eighth floor, the top floor, and that's, of course, where the chauffeurs live and where the maids live and where the et cetera live. And I knew that, so I get upstairs, and, of course, the last floor between seven and eight, they don't have an elevator. You walk up, you know, that's France. Anyway, knock on the door. There's a <clears throat> sign on the door that said, Melvin Van Peoples, writer. <laughs> it was right on the door, a big 
I knock on, come in. I walk in the, in the door. There sitting in the corner is the most curious looking African-American man I've ever seen. And of course, I was expecting a Dutchman, you know, Van Peoples. I mean, that's the, you go to that right away. Baldwin never told me that he was African-American and he had a tattoo on his neck that said, cut here. And he was slouched. And I believe he was the most casual man I've ever seen. And I went in, and within five minutes, I knew I adored the guy. He was incredible. He, first of all, not only very bright, but he had great experience. He came from San Francisco, where at one time he was actually a cable car motorman. He uh, just finished his first novel in French. He wrote it in French. And when he came to when he came to Europe, he didn't speak a word of French. He was a brilliant man. Anyway, his first novel was being published. And uh, it's such a, I think it was called One Day Pass, uh, first and maybe last novel, because then he turned to films. Anyway, I explained what I had to do. He said, it sounds good, man. I, I, I think I, I know I could do that. He says, how much money do you have? <laughs> so I said, well, quite frankly, I've got $25. <laughs> and he took, a, he took a beat and he looked at me. He says, well, that's cool. He said, he says but I want $10 advance money in American. <laughs> in other words, my first option, man, I paid him $10 and he came up in two nights after spending time with Benny with a wonderful scenario. We shot the film and on budget, Benny brought a, a, a news cameraman down from Copenhagen. We go back up to Copenhagen to Laterna Films, which was the big post-production house there and documentary makers at that time, run by a fabled character by the name of Scott Hansen. You should Google that name because he was remarkable. Uh, amongst other things, he had the greatest collection of magic lanterns in the world, you know, the early uh, cameras and things. Uh, anyway, so we go up there for post, and this is the first time I've ever seen a Steenbeck table. I've never, and, or a stand-up moviola. I've never been in the, you know, I'm getting my hands, and I learned there because Scott also knew that I didn't have any money, and Benny didn't have any money. Oh, how did I raise the fifteen hundred to make the film? My Mother and stepfather sent me 500. My stepmother and, and mother, whatever, both sides, each sent me 500. And my closest friend in life, Ike Pappas, who later became one of the great CBS newsmen, um, who I grew up with, high school, army, everything with him, he sent me 500 because everybody wanted me to come home because now I'm getting to 26. I'm playing jazz in Paris, and what the hell am I doing? I got a brother that's a physician, or I got another brother who's starting out as a public relations man and doing great on Broadway, representing David Merrick. I mean, the kid was only 21, and he was a press agent. And there I was in, in Paris, you know, still finding myself from a nice Jewish family, you know, that that doesn't happen. Anyway, we uh, do the film, we cut it together, we get a wonderful composer in Denmark to do a great score, everything. And I, from beginning to end, I was hands-on and I was able to also uh, edit uh, on the steam back, learn to, to join film and everything, uh, a documentary about India that he had. So I, I'm, it was an introduction to film. At the same time, I worked as an extra on uh, an American picture shooting in Denmark and taught jazz, you know, anything to keep alive up there. Anyway, 
finish film, go back to Paris, show the film to the guy, and he said, you know something? It's really a good film. We like it very much. However, there is not enough academics in it. You show their social... I said, well, God, you know what it was? It was it's a cultural exchange program. It's the full... Anyway, we're out 1500 bucks. I'm out 1500 bucks because I, I promised to pay people back. Go back up to Copenhagen. We decide to enter the picture in the short film festival for debutante directors in Cannes. Benny goes down there. He wins a modest prize. Screen Gems Columbia at that time was desperate for product in America, television product, because there was there were labor problems in Hollywood. There were all sorts of things, and they weren't getting product for this new machine that you know television is just devouring everything on film, everything. And so they bought the picture for $1,500 down in, um, at the Cannes Film, at the Cannes Short Film Festival. So I was able to pay everybody back. I'm up in Copenhagen. I get a call maybe two months later, three months. I really loved Copenhagen and I was learning a lot about working with film. And I get a call from Columbia Pictures in London. Now, you have to understand, in 1959, 60, 61, probably started in 58, it was runaway production. Every major studio in America, every major studio decided that they, because of labor problems, because of the kind of product they were making, which were these big uh, uh, costume dramas, uh, this is the Cleopatra period, the Ben-Hur period, the Dr. Zhivago period, the Lawrence of Arabia period where thousands of extras were needed, and it just didn't work for the American, at that moment, the American taste. So it was runaway production, and Columbia, United Artists, Universal, Paramount, Walt Disney, and 20th Century Fox, those are the majors at that time, all had offices on Wardour Street in London. I get a call from the head of production of Columbia Pictures. They saw my short, and it had my name on it, uh, that was played in front of one of the uh, competitive features that they would show every Wednesday night, the theater, they would look at competitive, and they would always show a short subject. Not only that, not only that, but truth be told, I had a distant relative that worked for Columbia. My dad gave the picture to that distant relative that worked for Columbia in New York City. They saw the picture, and that's the reason I got the call from the head of production saying, after they saw the movie, would you come to London for an interview with one of our American producers that's looking for an assistant? I took everything I had, which wasn't very much, my horn and, and the suitcase. The cheapest way to get to London, I got there. And the guy's name was Charles Schneer. Now, you must know that name if you know anything about films. Charles Schneer was an American producer for Columbia. It has to be said, by the way, he was also this, uh, a relative of Abe Schneider. He married one of Abe Schneider's nieces. Abe Schneider was president of Columbia after Harry Cohn left. In any event, he was a wonderful filmmaker, Charlie Schneer, because he did 
like Roger Corman kind of pictures that made a lot of money for Columbia. He did pictures, war pictures and westerns. Look him up. S-C-H-N-E-E-R. Charles Schneer. There's a Charles Schnee. That's not Charles Schneer. Charles Schneer was also in partnership with Ray Harryhausen. That name you must know. Ray Harryhausen had already done Mysterious Island for him. Had already done the uh, seventh voyage of Sinbad for him, and now was preparing a picture called Jason and the Argonauts or Jason and the Golden Fleece. And Charlie Schneer was producing it, looking for an assistant. I go to London. I meet Charlie Schneer. I'm wearing the only suit I had, which is my job suit with Harris tweed. And <laughs> and I go into the office and I meet him and he, and he said, I saw your picture. I like your picture. Uh, I, I, he says, how much money are you making now? I was making at that time in Copenhagen $125 a month. And I was living at Benny Corson's house and had a girlfriend, etc. And he said, well, I can pay you 150 I said, that's great, Mr. Schneer. He said, go down the hall and Mr. Arthur Terry, who's our accountant, will uh, pay you. Oh, you'll speak to him and sign your contract. I said, thank you, Mr. Schneer. Boom. I go to Terry's office, and he's already been called by Mr. Schneer. And he said, how much? I said, you know something? I've just come from Copenhagen. I don't have any money here. Uh, and, you know, what you see is what I got. And he said, can I have an advance? He says, how much do you want? I said, I don't know. Give me something. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you half. And he gave me, it was 150 uh, 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 dollars a week that they were thinking. I was getting $150 a month. So all of a sudden, I'm in shit pig heaven. And I'm making a lot of money, and I'm working as an accountant here. And I didn't know anything about the business. You have to understand, I haven't seen any of Charlie Schneer's pictures. I don't know anything. It was in that office, during the making of that picture, and going to Rome, and going to South Italy, and going to Yugoslavia, looking for locations first, that I got my baptism about making Hollywood movies and how to make movies. I started out as a Charlie Schneer's assistant, and I wound up four months, five months later, as a unit manager, helping taking care of a very big picture that was shooting in Rome and shooting in southern Italy. And we began to shoot in Yugoslavia. We were looking for locations in Yugoslavia, and I was left as a hostage there when the Americans didn't pay. There's a lot of stories. Anyway, it was my first break. I did the job really well. Columbia then said, hey, what about, and oh, I met a, uh, when I was shooting that picture, I met my first ex-wife, the first to be ex-wife, who's the mother of my of, uh, two children, my son, Sasha, and my daughter, Sabina. And uh, so uh, I met her, Ninky, South African. She was working on a, uh, a film that Max, uh, what's his name, Max, had a sister too, German actor, also with Peter Ustinov. Anyway, at Dino's studio, when we were shooting the studio stuff for Jason and the Argonauts, we're shooting that stuff at Dino's studio called the Safa Palatino Studios. And there she is. Oh, Eddie Dimitrik picture. It was called The Reluctant Saint. You're like Eddie Dimitrik, his last movie, I think. Anyway, when I get married, Columbia as a wedding present, 
gives and and my uh, future ex-wife was a wonderful production secretary, later a producer. And so they sent us to Yugoslavia to set up a picture called The Long Ships, which is this big Viking drama that we finally shot with uh, Sidney Poitier and Richard Widmark and a cast of thousands of Yugoslav soldiers and, and cavalrymen, etc. It's a damn good picture, actually. It's called The Long Ships, and it's directed by, uh, what's his name, the, the great, only directed two pictures, uh, wonderful uh, British photographer, damn it. Chris Chalice was the operator. Anyway, Jack Carter. Jack directed that picture. Lovely man, lovely man. Had great adventures. I was a year in Yugoslavia, a year. Met Tito, screened the pictures. Oh, you can't believe. Worked with the best, one of the great stuntmen in the world, and I, w- I wound up as uh, first, second unit, um, first assistant director and production manager of a unit that had 300 cavalrymen. We had three two Viking vessels and two Persian vessels. And the second unit director was John Wayne's second unit director. Um, Anyway, Cliff Lyons. Cliff Lyons, one of the greats. He he was, as a stuntman, he performed the famous, uh, the the one where the chariot goes over in Ben-Hur. We needed tank work, right? In Italian, it's called piscine, like a tank, like a swimming pool. The biggest tank in Europe at that time was the Cinecittà in Rome. And we needed a tank work where the Viking vessels go against the Moorish vessels, and there's fog, and there's waves, and there's, you know, there's turbulence, etc. So now the picture, the principal photography is finished. I'm delegated to run this big unit shooting there which is great because I'm back in Rome where I was for Jason. And now this time I'm with my wife, who is also production secretary. So we're doing really well in terms of, you know, finance. In those days, it's, the production secretary probably made $150 a week. And I was, I think I was making about $300 a week and everything paid. It was always on per diem. The best two words in the film business, per diem. Never forget that. We're shooting one day, actually it was one night, and there's a lot of smoke and bum, 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 and for fog, and uh, all of a sudden I see this guy with a 16 millimeter Bolex camera, and he's walking towards me, and he introduces himself as an American documentary maker by the name of Warren Kiefer, K-I-E-F-E-R. And Warren said, you know, I just came back from Libya, where I'm shooting a documentary for ESSO about the exotic uses of petroleum. And I thought, wow, it would be great to do this. Here you are making fog for miniature ships. I said, boy, that's, you're not kidding. It's also good publicity for the film. Bam, 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 bam. And we become pals. He shoots for a couple of days, my wife and his wife. And the two of us, we really hit it off. I'm finished in, uh, I don't have my next job. Oh, I had a next job and then I come back to Rome. Yeah, I had a next job and then I come back to Rome. And uh, in between, I get a picture called The Running Man with Lawrence Harvey, Lee Remick, and Alan Bates. And it was Carol Reed's last film. And I worked as a, a production manager, not manager, but produ- production representative for Columbia. Anyway. In fact, that was the, the film that I proposed to my wife. <laughs> uh, so anyway, here we are, and 
Warren says to me one night, he says, I want to direct the film. And I said, I want to produce my first film. And he said, and I said, you know something, the best kind of film to make is a horror film because if we can make it cheap, we've got all these castles here. I've got enough experience. I know, you know, you write the scenario. I'll go get some good actors, blah, 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 blah. And um, so we wound up. He wrote a script called uh, Castle of the Living Dead. And uh, I began casting. And the first person I turned to is, I just heard from his widow just 20 minutes ago. I turned to Christopher Lee. Uh, I didn't know him. But I knew he was the kingpin of horror. He and Peter Cushing were. And Boris Karloff was a little passe by this time. I called his agent. And the agent said, sure, just, uh, you know, give us a firm offer. And uh, you can have him for three weeks for $15,000 at the time. And uh, I decided when we did a budget on the script that Warren wrote, it came out to about 320, no, this one came out to $128,000, the film did. And uh, was it that one was 128 or was it 328? It's, it's, it was under $500,000. Anyway, uh, I got Christopher Lee now, and I go to Rizzoli in in uh, Italy. See, at this time, you'd go on the Via Veneto, and you'd have coffee at, at one of the, the two cafes there, and you'd sit there, and you'd see a buyer from Germany, a buyer from Spain, a buyer from France, a buyer from uh, Benelux. It was called Hollywood on the Veneto, you know, that's what it was. Hollywood on the Tiber. And there's so much runaway production, so many things happening. This is the beginning of the Machista films, you know, this Tits and Sandal films. It was the early, early time for the Spaghetti Westerns, very early. That didn't come for another four or five years. But this was the time of those, what they call Machista or the Tits and Sandal pictures of Roman gladiators and all that horseshit. And uh, also the time of inexpensive horror films. And you had wonderful, uh, wonderful Italian directors of, of inexpensive horror films. Anyway, here we go. I raised the money from Rizzoli to make the movie. So now we need a, uh, English, uh, English speaking dwarf for <laughs> to play a principal role in the picture. And, uh, so Warren and I go to London to the Billy Smart Circus. And we interview a half a dozen, and they're all pricks. <laughs> they were nasty guys. And they didn't want to travel. They didn't have, it was a lot of bullshit. I didn't have the money to pay them. So before we go back to Rome, we go to the Royal Court Theater to see a, a performance of Spoon River Anthology. It was also a play that I always liked, and Warren did too. And we go, and on stage, there are like 20 different characters, and they each play two roles or whatever. And out comes this big gawky guy with a big Adam's apple and gives the most wonderful performance in one character and then gives the most marvelous performance in another character. His name was Donald Sutherland. And we go backstage after the show and we had a witch and we had a uh, revolutionary soldier in, in the film. So he could play both. He'd be great. So I said, Donald, you were great. Have you ever been in a movie? No. I said, look, we're shooting a horror film in Rome in a couple of weeks. You can come over there, stay at Warren's house, 
and I'll pay you $50 a week. You'll be there for three weeks. I'll give you enough money to go around. You can eat, and it'll be your first credit. And Warren's first film as a director and mine first as a producer. But I'm going to put a great crew together because I knew a lot of Italian technicians from my days working on the longships and then Jason and other pictures. I knew all the greats. And they had favors. You know, they're going to do favors for me. I got Aldo Tanti, the number one photographer in all of Italy. I got him to do the, the picture. Anyway, we, sh we shoot the picture. And during the movie, I, Warren introduces him to his, his future ex-wife and also the mother of the boy we call Kifa. That was that's Kiefer Sutherland. He came from Warren Kiefer, the director of that. I finished that picture. Now I made my first movie, and into Rome comes a guy that uh, worked as my assistant on the longships, a very rich young English guy. He's 19 years old. He comes with a bag of money, 50000 uh, We made the picture for $45,000. And uh, he says, I want to direct my first movie. I've written a script. Could you put it together? Here's the money. And I made his first picture. And that was the director, Michael Reeves, who later went on to make some really good movies. And then unfortunately uh, dies quite suddenly before his career really shot to the roof. But he did some great movies. Look him up if you don't know him. Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S. He could have been the Sam Peckinpah uh, but he took it. Unfortunately, he died too young. Anyway, so I make the picture and it was called, what the hell did we call it? Sister of Satan or She Beast. Yeah, She Beast. And it was a good movie and I sold the movie and, I, and, it, and it plays, you still see it. And then from there, I don't know, I just... It just, I just got hooked up, and I next thing I do, I made a picture call. Oh, for Irving Allen, who was the producer of the Long Ships and the producer of Alfred the Great and Lisa, etc. Uh, Irving had a picture called Eyewitness that he had a good script, and he asked me to produce it for him. And that was Johnny Huff's first picture, and that was Lionel Jeffries and Susan George and Mark Lester, the kid who had just uh, uh, appeared in Oliver. And we made it in Malta, and it was a wonderful, wonderful movie. It, uh, it should be remade. But anyway, did that, and then just kept making movies and, uh, overseas. And then uh, United Artists uh, asked me to go to work for them. And, and I wound up for two years running uh, production in Europe on the continent, a physical production for United Artists. And I learned a tremendous amount during that period. I mean, it was really great. I worked with Fellini and De Broca and, and Latoada and Jeremy and just name, name a, a famous French or Italian producer. United Artists was funding their films in those days. So I'd go off and, and you know, supervise. How could you supervise a, a guy like Fellini? How could you supervise De Broca? All you do is try to give him as much help as possible. And in the process, you meet wonderful people, you know. And so that two years with United Artists was incredible. And then I didn't want to continue with UA because um, I just felt there were things going on that I, uh, I didn't want to continue. I wanted to go back to producing, 
more than anything else. And I was coming to the end of two good years, being paid very well, great experience, living in Rome, chauffeurs, the whole fucking deal in those days. A good friend of mine, the guy who gave me the $500, Ike Pappas. Ike comes to Rome for CBS and says there's going to be a war in Israel. This is June of 1967, uh, the 67 war. He says there's going to be a war in Israel. I'm going over there. And he's stopping off in Rome. I said, I got to go with you. I want to go with you. He says, how can you go with me? You got a job. I said, I'm going to, you know something, this is more important. I want to go there. It looks like it's going to be incredible. I'll do anything to get there. He says, okay. I try to get a hold of UA, the guy who was running all of Europe and UA, and he was off someplace. So I take off with Pappas on June, uh, June 6th, and which is the day the war began. And we uh, had the last plane out of Da Vinci Airport in Rome, and the last plane to arrive commercially at Lud Airport in Tel Aviv. Anyway, and I, I drove an, an Avis rental car with with Pappas, Israeli lieutenant liaison office, uh, officer. I operated uh, some sound equipment, and uh, there was a cameraman from Germany, a great guy. Anyway, did the, the Six Day War. I was fired by United Artists for leaving my post. I come back to Rome, where I had a great place, where I was living with my wife then, didn't have kids, and. Uh, Jesus, that's good for me. I'm going to go. I'm very much in demand production guy. Already, Mel Frank was setting up a picture for United Artists, too. And he said he wanted me to work as associate producer on it. And uh, and all of a sudden, that collapsed. And then another one collapsed. And another one collapsed. And people asking me to produce, to associate producer, production manager. And now I'm out of work for about four months. My future ex-wife was working as a production secretary, but I've got a big overhead because we were living pretty large. Anyway, my mother in New York, living on Central Park South, (laughs) she uh, was in the elevator and a guy comes into the elevator, looks at her and says, aren't you Beatrice Plosky? And she said, no, that was my maiden name. Then it was Maslansky. He says, I went to grammar school with you in 1915. But, oh, you and uh, they hug and everything in the elevator. And then he said, Maslansky, I've just come from Paris. He said, you know, I'm the American representative of the United Jewish Appeal. And after the Six-Day War, there was a tremendous rush for um, for people to contribute to the United Jewish Appeal because of the, uh, Israel expended so much treasure on that war. And they had to be supported again. And so they toured all over. And he was in with the Jewish community in Paris when he ran into the guy that fired me from, you know, Ilya Lopo said, oh, the guy will never work again. And he told that to my mother, and my mother didn't even know that I had been fired from United Artists. I never told her. And she called me and she told me what happened. So I was blacklisted because I did what I did. So I wrote a letter to the heads of United Artists in New York, Krim, Benjamin, Picker, all of them. And I said, what the hell did you do? I don't mind that I'm no longer working for you, but don't kill my uh, my career because I, I wanted to go to Israel and, and to be involved in that, et cetera, et cetera. Within 
I would say less than two weeks, I get a call from 20th Century from a guy saying, uh, look, my name is Irv Levin, and, and I heard from United Artists, the people in UA, about your reputation, good reputation. I've got a, a picture I want you to do uh, with Rock Hudson and Claudia Cardinale, and uh, uh, Franco uh, Cristaldi is producing the picture for us, but we want you to be the one who who supervised because we're we're putting up the finance for us. You got it. And from there, I never stopped. I went from that picture, and then Claudia Cardinale and Cristaldi liked me, and I went to um, to Russia to Soviet Union for a year uh, as Cristaldi's guy for making the first co-production between the East and the West, which was the Red Tent, the Tenderosa, Krasnipalatka. I spent a year in Russia there, and that's where I started getting my Russian uh, reputation, because I've made four pictures in Russia, in Soviet Union or, or Russia. Anyway, finished that, and went. To, uh, what did I do then? I'm still in Europe, and I go, uh, and I go, oh, and I meet Alan Ladd in London. And uh, I come to, oh, and Lalan Lad says he's got a picture in Israel he wants to shoot with Peter Ustinov. And he gives me the script and the cast, Peter Ustinov and Francesca Annis and uh, the director, Robert Ellis Miller, a really good guy, gives me $800,000 to go to Israel and make the movie. We make the movie. And from there, and I really loved Israel again because now I'm there and I'm familiar because I've been there during the war and everything and now I'm making a movie there and after that made another movie at the lad company the Gary Sherman Gary Sherman was a, a, a guy living in London who's a friend of Jonathan Demi Jonathan Demi was a stringer for the Rolling Stone uh, newspaper he was a music stringer in London and I met him through Gary, and he was a terrific guy, amazing guy. I really took to him right away and had a great, great wife at the time. I think since they had been divorced and he was remarried, but he was a terrific guy. And Gary Sherman said, I've got a horror picture, and I'd like you to produce it. I said, you read it? And I said, Jesus, terrific. And I took it to Alan Ladd because I had been there to do the other picture. The uh, Laddie at that time, and Jay Cantor and Elliot Kastner. And we made this picture, uh, you know. Uh, I had Christopher Lee, I had uh, Donald Pleasance, I had uh, Norman, whatever. And, and it was a, a David Ladd, Alan Ladd's brother. David was the protagonist. And we made this little horror picture for 50,000 pounds, and it was really good. And it's considered to this day a classic horror picture. Anyway, uh, from that, after that picture, after that picture, I was hired by Brute. Uh, we were just starting their stuff in Europe. They had just done a picture with George Siegel and Glenda Jackson that Mel Frank directed. <clears throat> really good movie. Anyway, uh, uh, George Barry asked me to run his production, could supervise production for him. And then my ex-wife, who's in Australia, sends me an article about this girl that got lost in the jungle of Peru as a result of she fell out of a plane over the jungle. Well, she didn't fall out. The plane disintegrated, and it was a Lockheed Electra 
and it was a major, major air crash in the Amazon. And anyway, it was a dramatic story of how she survived 5,000 meter fall with only a broken shoulder bone, uh, scratches and losing one sandal. And in any event, <laughs> my ex, my then ex-wife asked me to, with her to produce it. So we went off to the jungle of the Amazon for four months and came up with a really good movie. And it still plays. Anyway, she produced that, but I was there to the whole thing. I finished that. Everything collapsed in Europe with Easy Rider. When Easy Rider came along and won all those awards, and all the attention in America it was no longer the big costume pictures very much. It was now dealing with American issues, dealing with the youth culture, dealing with drugs, dealing with the different kind of music. And it was a different audience. All of a sudden, you know, an 18 to 24 year old audience is the demographic that the studios are looking for. So all these big costume pictures were something of the past. Anyway, virtually all of us from that were runaway uh, directors, writers, actors, uh, producers. There weren't too many producers, but there were a few. Irving came home, Cubby Broccoli came home. Very few remained overseas. And agents, even American agents came home. So I find myself in America, I'm 40 years old. I have a lot of good credits. I know the business, I'm kind of broke. In fact, I am broke. I have a wife and at this time, one child overseas, even though I'm separated. And I go to Sam Arkoff, who was running American International Pictures, and he was the guy that bought all my horror pictures. From Sugar Hill, Larry Gore, I, I made a picture for ABC from a book that I discovered in Peru when I was in Peru at a Seventh-day Adventist preacher had a book. We used to go on, on Saturdays, because that's Seventh-day Adventure, and his float plane down the Ukiali River, and to while he preached, <laughs> he set up a, a little organ his wife played. He, uh, I played my trumpet. One of the other kids played guitar while hymns were taught to these tribes down there. Anyway, absolute true story while we were making that. So... From there, I just, after Sugar Hill, I made a picture for ABC that Paul Witt, my old friend Paul Witt from New York, had a company with Danny Thomas and I, Gun in the Pulpit with Marjo. And from there, Larry Gordon asked me to produce Hard Times, the Charlie Bronson picture. And then I just didn't stop from there. You know, you've got all my record, what I've done. And that's basically it. I think one of the high points and career differences with myself and I would say virtually any producer I know is the fact that I've worked in virtually every country that had a, a, a film industry and I've worked more than almost anybody in the Soviet Union and in Russia, spent a year in Yugoslavia, shot in Spain, shot in Mexico, shot everywhere, Canada, shot television and I did a wonderful television series on Martin Luther King which I produced, and we were nominated for 11 Emmys. Only won one, I think. Was it for who? I forget. Anyway, I'm proud of what I've done, and I'm, I'm doing now. I mean, I've got, I'm going to do Police Academy 8, and I'm doing it with New Line, uh, New World. And I've got Key and Peel as my partners on it, and we're writing a new script. This will be one of many scripts that's been written for it. 
And finally, we're going to lick it. And I'm doing the Bruce Lee remake of the picture I made. Oh, I didn't even check. I made one of the pictures I made in Israel was with David Carradine called Circle of Iron, Bruce Lee's story that he wrote and he was going to play. And he died. And Jimmy Coburn and Sterling Silifant and Bruce Lee owned the rights. And they were sold eventually to Sandy Howard, a good friend of mine, who asked me to produce the picture. So I want to remake it now. And I've got uh, uh, financing in, in store for for this uh, with a, a man in uh, India uh, who was uh, uh, who has optioned it all from me and is putting it together. And I'm doing you know Stunt Academy that my son is uh, producing. I'm exec producing it, uh, and that's with Australians. And then I'm doing a. Um, fireman comedy that uh, called Hose Draggers that we've got over at one of the studios waiting for contracts on it. So I'm doing fine, have a lot of things going, and uh, have great memories and, you know about what I've done and what I still want to do and the best part of it is meeting all these people over the years and people who are still my friends. In fact, on uh, November 22nd at USC, uh, at USC, uh, they're going to honor Police Academy One, and I'm going over there with a bunch of the actors. And, and two months ago, they honored Return to Oz, the one I produced in in England, and which is really a damn good picture. And they just had a convention, for God's sakes, in San Diego for all the Return the Oz fans. 500 people showed up with more memorabilia, shoes, this that. Couldn't believe it. I've, I've had, a, I think, a wonderfully different kind of career, and it's still going, and I still feel healthy, and I still feel ready for the challenge. Tell me more about Race with the Devil. What was that one like? I mean, you had such a great cast in that. No, oh, wasn't it, though? It really was. I took the history of that picture. It was interesting. I had worked for Alan Ladd. Well, I made a picture in, in London with Al Laddie, and he became a fool. Oh, today's his birthday. God damn it. Seven o'clock. I got a call. Um, anyway, Laddie now took over Fox. He became head of production at Fox. So he asked me to come over there and uh, take over a picture that was had been shooting in uh, San Antonio for about eight days, eight shooting days. And they were shooting a six day week down there. So they were into their second week. And two nice guys, uh, Bishop and, ooh, the first guy was the director, Lee Frost and, and, uh, and West Bishop. I didn't know Lee Frost because by the time I got down there, Lee Frost was gone. Laddie calls me on a weekend and said, look, I've got a showdown in Texas. We don't like what's going on with it. We don't like the dailies. They're behind two or three days. It's with Peter Fonda and Warren Oates and Loretta Swit. I didn't know who Loretta Swit was, by the way. And then I realized, hold it, that's a mesh. And we're, we're in trouble with the picture. We want to fire the director and fire the producer. I said, well, who do you have in mind for director? He said, I got a guy by the name of Jack Starrett who's done some pictures like this, exploitation pictures. And uh, would you do it? I said, great. He said, I said, when do you want me to go down there? I says, tomorrow. I want you to meet. I'm going to uh, um, 
send the script out to where, I, where was I living then? I was living out here in the same place in Malibu. I'll send the script out to you. And tomorrow I got, we got tickets for you to go to uh, uh, down there to San Antonio. And he'll meet you at the airport. At, uh, you'll be introduced by the, the representative of uh, whatever the airline was. And I go down, I read the script overnight. And Jesus, I said, this is one hell of a good yarn. This is good. And I never saw any of the stuff that they shot, by the way. It was just the next day. And I meet Jack. We go down. Jack hadn't read the script yet. I allowed him to read the script on the plane. And we get down there and to the motel in San Antonio. And of course, you know, this is disaster time because you got a whole crew down there that has been shooting eight days. They get word that the director's been fired. He's gone. He's left town. West Bishop is in his room. The two stars refused to come out of their room. And that was Warren Oates and, and uh, Peter Fonda. And uh, the only time they came out of their room was to take the service, uh, the room service trays and to exchange them for the old ones. I mean, they were because they were protesting to Fox that how dare you fire these directors, one of the, this director, this, uh, the picture was in fucking shambles. It was. But the, the uh, director of photography was my good guy that I had worked with on my, uh, and some of the other crew because it's a Texas crew. And I knew a bunch of the guys in the crew. I knew, I knew the grips. I knew a couple of the electricians. And so I didn't know the first and I didn't know the production manager, got to know them real fast and finally convinced Peter and Warren Oates to allow Starrett and myself into their room to talk to them. And that took a couple of hours of talking through a door and we go into the room and we sit down and said, this is the, these are the facts. The studio, we haven't seen the dailies, but the studio says NG. We've been sent down. Both of us have experience. You know Jack Starrett. You don't know me. But Warren Oates did know my brother, who was his publicist. His company was representing Warren. He says, I know your brother. And Peter didn't know me from any, anybody. Jack Starrett didn't know me. The only people who knew was some of the crew. The next thing you know, I, I called the studio. I said, we haven't seen the dailies. What do you want us to reshoot? They sent us a list, which was about three days of shooting that we had to reshoot. The first thing I did, I sat down with the production manager and I sat down with Jack Starrett and I said, here is a map of where we are in San Antonio. I'm going to put a compass on the map and I'm going to draw a 50 mile radius on this compass from where this motel is. No locations are going to be beyond that 50 miles. Show me where your locations are. And there was one 80 miles away, another one 40. I mean, it was ridiculous what they were doing. So I said, the first thing we do tomorrow, Sunday, we go out, we find new locations for the ones that are beyond 50 miles. And we did. We I had the production designer and we're doing it till, you know, two in the morning finding places. Monday, we began shooting. We made up for all the lost time. We made a picture that was one of Fox's big grossing pictures that year. It was a feather in everybody's cap. It was really, and for me, it was one of the best produced pictures that I, because I came in, it was in shambles, and I was able to pull everybody together to make a successful picture, a picture that made money. Right after that, they asked me to do 
The Bluebird with George Cukor, which I did, and that's another long story. And then I did Damnation Alley, and then I did King, and then I did, you know, kept going. So, but that's the story of um, Race with the Devil. And West Bishop, I kept West Bishop on it. I even allowed him to have his credit. And he, uh, because he was an actor in it too, and he was damn good and a really good guy. And uh, I would honestly say, that it turned out to be an exceptionally good film experience. Can you tell me a little bit more about the making of Damnation Alley? Well, that's an interesting one. Once again, after doing this uh, save job on Race with the Devil, Laddie said, I got another one for you. We're in pre-pre-production on a picture called Damnation Alley. It's a big special effects picture, and we can't seem to solve one of the major problems of the movie, which is how to introduce background skies that are constantly changing. And we haven't been able to devise a system. This is long before cyber, long before computers. We haven't been able to uh, address how you can stop the chatter of the, the mats in the background with uh, your real background, you know. So you see that awful stuff that goes on. Anyway... We, we we have a green light on the picture. We have George Papard. We have Michael Jan Vincent. We have Paul Winfield. We have uh, Dominic. Sa- oh no, I cast Dominic Sanda. And we got a, a nice director, and he was a sweet man, a really good man. Jack Spite, Smite, Jack Spite, Smite, Spite, Smite, Jack Smite. <laughs> One of the loveliest men. And by the way, without question. Filmed for television, one of the great jazz concerts of all time. You got to look that one up. Jack Smite, just a wonderful man. Did some good pictures. Did Midway, I think, uh, and did some other good movies. And a lovely man, as lovely as they come. Anyway, that was this was going to be Lottie's big Christmas picture. He happened to be shooting at the same time George Lucas's Star Wars in London. Now, we're coming through with some very good dailies, really good-looking stuff. But, of course, special effects, eventually, you're going to have to introduce skies into a lot of these dailies. And uh, we're checking along, and I took over the picture from a guy that, uh, a good guy who just owned the rights, but was not a, a physical producer, didn't have, you know, a really good guy. In fact, everybody connected that with nice people. But I took over the picture and and uh, we made it. And uh, it, at the same time, when we're in post production, there's Laddie. He's getting dailies in, of just people waving wands around, and he, he was very concerned, you know. From and eventually, of course, you know what happened, and we're going to see what happened again in November, you know. My God, we could never, could never really solve the problem of the skies. It was still a decent special effects movie, and it was made on budget. And you know, by God, I don't, I don't for a moment regret making that movie or being part of it. And that's Damnation Alley. Papard was terrific to deal with, and Jan Michael was too. Of course, it was the pre-Jan Michael going to pieces, Jan Michael. Poor Jan Michael. I, this past Wednesday, this past weekend, my girlfriend and I went down to San Diego to, to La Jolla to see a screening of Big Wednesday. 
which of course, you know, is what's his name's uh, big Milius's first really picture. I had never seen the picture, believe it or not, never seen the picture. And of course, it didn't do particularly well, but of course, became a fabled big Wednesday with all the surfers. It's not a good movie. It's not, it's not by any standards. It's not. And it's not good direction. He did direct a terrific picture with Sean Connery. Uh, when Sean Connery plays a, 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 an Arab, what was it called? End in the Lion. I, we're talking about a wonderfully directed picture. And he directed Sean, who uh, doesn't tolerate fools, believe me, because I've done two pictures with Sean. And, uh, and one of the loveliest men ever to grace. For me, the best, my, very rarely do producers have friends that are actors. Very rarely do directors have friends that are actors. It's just the way it seems to work. Maybe I'm wrong. But I've had the fortunate, I'm so fortunate. I had Christopher Lee as, as close a friend as I could have. I had Sean as a, as a good friend. I had Peter Finch as a very, very good friend. I had Matt McCoy as a dear friend. Matt Clark. I mean, as stuntmen, people, you know, they're good friends. It's rare, though. I got to tell you, George Siegel, you know, because he was, we had a band together, the Beverly Hills Enlisted Jazz Band. We played Carnegie Hall together. And we played, you know, Carson Show, what, eight times. That's my life. What are you going to do about it? Going to make a movie of it? I'm so glad to hear that you're uh, taking another swag at uh, Circle of Iron. It's been very disappointing, I've got to tell you, because as soon as I bought the underlying rights from Sandy Howard's widow, and here's a circle that it becomes squared, unfortunately, she held the rights, the widow, but who was she? She was the publicist Harvey Matusky's wife on Jason and the Golden Fleece in Rome, and I knew her so well during those days. And and she, she wasn't the easiest woman then. And now she held me up with it like a gun. For anyway, I have the rights, and I'm going to make I'm I'm going to find a way to make that picture into something very special. And I've spent a lot of dough on it now. And I've got I think the right person who can get the right financing and has the right contacts in China. He's born in Hong Kong, is an Indian, and he runs the largest real estate company in India now. And his name is, look him up, Jason Ramadi. Jason Ramadi. He also was a chief officer of some big uh, comic book company. So he recognizes in the silent flute something that could be more than one picture, which I've always thought it could be a franchise in a way. The character can be. And, And the reason I paid all this money for it is because of the Bruce Lee name. I mean, it's it's an interesting story. It's not Dr. Zhivago, but it's an interesting story, and it can be made into a fascinating picture today using today's effects. What you can do now, which we couldn't do with the original picture, we were a very restricted budget, but we had some good stuff in that. All of that Eli Wallach stuff was good, and where we photographed was wonderful stuff. Yeah, the the Eli Wallach scene is probably my favorite yeah, no, it's scene. It's my favorite scene, too. It really is. And he was such a gentleman out there. The heat coming down on him. Oh, my God. I was really reminded. Uh, did you see that movie, Book of Eli? Yes, I did. 
I was totally reminded of the silent flute while I was watching you, you that You know one. something? You're absolutely right. It has that kind of what's what's the word they use for that? There's a word uh, that describes that kind of post-apocalyptic kind of feel to it. And of course, this was pre-apocalyptic. Now, the script that I've had written is post-apocalyptic now. But I don't know whether Jason Romani wants that script. I gave him the rights to Bruce Lee's original story, three pages. That's all it is, three or four pages. I gave him the rights to a script that uh, we used in the original film. Sterling Silliphant's script, which was also had some rewrites by a, a wonderful uh, English uh, American writer living in England at the time. Anyway, uh, he has the rights to that script, and he also has the rights to a script that I had written uh, when I once again bought the rights to it. So, and that's a post-apocalyptic script. So he has a choice of going anywhere, including just using Bruce Lee's name and story, uh, you know, for something he wants to create. I believe that within the next three months, I'm going to hear some important stuff about that film. He's determined to make it something very special. And remember, when we made A Circle of Iron, Bruce Lee was an unknown in mainland China. Totally unknown, because they didn't have video then. They, didn't have, they couldn't sneak films in to be shown. And all of a sudden, Bruce Lee became this iconic character, his picture hangs next to Mao, you know, and and so I think we have a great possibility of a great a great film and some great martial arts, and uh, I look forward to that. Also, the police academy can really give us give us another perspective on how police can be trained so that they don't have this friggin' lousy reputation that they have worldwide now of shoot first and ask later, and. Uh, police Academy, I want this writer to write all about how you can train police properly and how there can be counter to that people who just don't understand and have to be put down one way or another. And I have to do it in a comedic sense, just like MASH treated war in a comedic sense. We have to treat this gun violence in a comedic sense. And we can do it. It can be a very, very responsible and, and yes, you can have the edginess of key and peel, peel and key, which I do love. And it, it'll probably wind up an R movie, which I don't like the idea of. But I don't want it mean spirited, and I don't want to see blood, and I don't want to have horrible use of language. And I don't want to have death in it, you know? You can't have death in this kind of comedy. Yeah. So we'll see. A studio, you know. You're at the will of the studio, and uh, I'm going to do all right. I feel I am. I have a feeling you will, yeah. I'll just hang in and uh, hang in and tough when I have to be tough and, and uh, give and compromise when I feel compromise is not going to totally destroy it, you know? Well, that's terrific. I'm looking forward to all your new projects, and thank you so much for all the ones that you've done already. That You've done so much great work. Well, thank you so much. I tell you, I haven't unloaded like this in a long time. I've been approached by a number of people, you know, to say, come on, tell two book. Because, you know, I have great stories about Mankiewicz and Cukor and Rex Harrison and all this stuff I when I was at UA and all the scandals. And I mean, I've got really wonderful stuff about that, that I'd, I'd really like to tell because it's truth. 
and someday I and someday I'll get down and do it. Well, I, I don't know if I'll have a chance to do this sort of thing. The, uh, helping me in my career have been ver some very significant people. I, I would say, you know, along the way, Benny Corson, my Danish friend, gave me the real spark to go into the film business. And a guy by the name of Bill Graff, who ran Columbia Pictures, gave me an opportunity with Charlie Schneer. And Irving Allen taught me so much. But there was a production manager by the name, who later became a producer by the name, an English one, by the name of Johnny Dark, who taught me everything, how to break down pictures, how to, he taught me what the role of a, a, a real line producer is, a production manager is, a first assistant is, and he baptized me into the business, Johnny Dark did. And then later, Irving Allen, and I, I've had some, you know, Allen Ladd Jr., I've made more pictures for Allen Ladd Jr. than I don't think any other producer in the business. I made, uh, in, in England, I made, Two, one for him in England. I made three at four at uh, Fox. I made uh, at Warner Brothers. I made Love Child. I made uh, seven Police Academies. You know, I mean, Jesus, I, I made a lot of movies for Laddie. Laddie is, in my estimation, one of the greatest movie heroes there are out there, without question. And that's my story, whether you like it or not.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.